Good morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Talk Radio Philadelphia. Welcome to 2019, ladies and gentlemen. For all of our listeners out there, I hope you had a wonderful New Year's and Christmas holiday. You're now back at work into the trenches and getting ready for an exciting 2019. And just like you may be ready after your New Year's New Year's celebrations of getting back to the grind, so are we here at MEF Century Radio. We've got a great program ahead for you this morning with E.J. Kimball, the director of the Israel Victory Project, coming on at 1010, the top of the hour. And then Ephraim Inbar, the director and founder of the Jerusalem Institute for Security Studies, here at half past. But before we get to that, I'd like to go over a few stories that have come up over the last week since our last broadcast and give you a little bit of a take of what 2019 will look like in the Middle East and specifically how it will affect your interests as Americans. Now, I was having the opportunity to read an article this morning on Al Jazeera. Yes, sometimes you do have to read the opposition's uh, rag, if you want to take it that way, just to understand what they're thinking. And the article was titled, What Will the Middle East Look Like in 2019? So I thought I would go subject by subject, take the Al Jazeera Qatari position, and then give you what I think you should be caring about, where I agree, disagree, and vehemently reject some of their prognostications that they've put forward. First and foremost, they talk about the Syrian conflict. And they say, despite the defeat of the Syrian opposition and the retaking of large swaths of land by pro-regime forces in 2018, the Syrian conflict is far from over. More than 40% of Syria's territory is still not under the control of the Damascus government. They go on to say, regarding President Trump's recent announcement to withdraw American troops from Syria, that the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the oil, gas, and water-rich Northeast is likely to fan the competition between the major external powers in the conflict, Turkey, Russia, and Iran. This is also likely to affect the demilitarized zone agreement in Idlib, which is in the northwest of the country, which prevented a major onslaught on the last opposition stronghold last September. They then go on to say that Syria will become a battleground for proxy warfare, as if it had not already been a battleground for proxy warfare over the last eight years since the eruption of the Syrian conflict in 2011. To take you back for a second, we only had local domestic Syrian activists eight years ago turning out in the streets. Now, eight years later, almost a full two presidential terms later, we have Russia, Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, less and less so the United States, the European Union, and then the domestic affiliates associated with this conflict, whether it be the Kurds or the Alawis, that's the minority group that controls the Syrian government, Shia, Sunni, and 14 other minority groups that all have a stake in this conflict. Where Al Jazeera gets it wrong is that this is not just a battle over blood and oil, and natural resources. This is the battle for the future of who will rule the Middle East. And in this case, it's not as if there can only be one. Like we have to see that there may only be one power that can actually rule in that area. But now that President Trump has made his commitment to pull out U.S. troops, 
we already see in a meeting that he had with Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina just yesterday that he is not necessarily going to pull out these troops in a fast timetable like he had originally committed to. Is this President Trump realizing the error in his quick announcement where he went against his national security advisor, John Bolton? He went against his former now Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. He went against his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and every other senior national security advisor he had had. A story that was out in the AP over the weekend showed us how this experience went. President Trump woke up one morning, had a schedule called with the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He gets on the call with talking points that are ready for him, which say, Mr. President of Turkey, you must understand that it is not acceptable for the Turkish army to have your incursions into Syria. There are 2,000 American troops there. We do not want one hair on the head of any Kurd hurt by your army. And President Erdogan responded, but Mr. Trump, Mr. President, you promised during your campaign that once ISIS had been defeated, you would withdraw American troops from Syria. And much to Erdogan's surprise, Trump said, you know what, Mr. Erdogan? You know what, Mr. President of Turkey? We will pull out all troops now, immediately. I will fulfill my promise to bring our boys home. And much to the chagrin of Mr. Erdogan, he thought he was jockeying for political power or positioning and being able to get control of the Syrian-Turkish border. Mr. Erdogan said, hold on a second, Mr. President. Maybe you don't want to pull out so fast. We don't have the battle tanks to be able to invade Syria. We don't have the manpower that's deployed there right now. I'm only politically positioning in my conversation with you. And Mr. Trump responds, well, Mr. Erdogan, you asked for it and you're going to get it. And then over the weekend, after that phone call, all of Trump's major advisors came together around a roundtable and said, how do we do this with the least amount of devastating impact on our position in the Middle East? They came back to Mr. Trump on Monday morning. And by that time, then Chief of Staff John Kelly had said to the three most powerful national security figures at that time in the Trump White House, the president has made his decision. He will announce it on Tuesday in a press conference scheduled by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary of the White House. And preempting that announcement, he tweeted his new foreign policy directive saying that the White House has decided that American troops within the next 120 days will withdraw any remnants of an American imprint in Syria. This leaves the Turks surprised. It leaves President Trump's national security team surprised. And much to the detriment of all of America's allies in that region. Most importantly, I think, the Kurds that are serving side by side with the Americans in northeast Syria and the Israelis who are relying on the American bulwark in 40% of that country to fend for themselves. A diplomatic sprint begins. And yesterday, two significant meetings took place. One, that with Senator Graham, where Trump begins to backtrack on the immediacy of his announcement. And two, a meeting between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, 
of Israel and Secretary of State Pompeo. A newspaper article would later go on to reveal yesterday in an analysis that Netanyahu got almost everything he wanted. And Senator Graham, in a bi-pronged sprint, was able to get what he needed too. I don't think we'll be seeing the immediate withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria. Eventually, they will leave. But the fallacy and the folly of Mr. Trump's decision to be able to move so fast has now crashed into reality. And albeit what the Al Jazeera article said about the future of Syria and the conflict there, America still has an axe to grind. Maybe not with ISIS, but definitely with Iran. More on that later in the hour. After these messages, E.J. Kimball. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio Philadelphia. Our next guest has been with the Middle East Forum for the past two years and currently leads our foreign policy and Israel Victory Project related efforts in Washington, D.C. E.J. Kimball, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on. So, E.J., today uh, marks a momentous time in the history of the U.S. Congress. I believe we're in the 116th or 17th Congress now? That's correct. And we find ourselves with a House divided. The Democrats today will officially take over control of the U.S. House of Representatives. The Senate stays in Republican hands. 25% of the government is still shut down. And the air of bipartisanship that we may have seen ink here and there in the last two years is now gone, along with President Trump's ability to have a united policy front, at least on the issues that we talk about here on the program regarding foreign policy, on the Hill. Three things happened that I wanted to point out, and then I want to get your reflection on them. The first, Senator, uh, now Senator, or Senator-elect, soon to be sworn in, Mitt Romney comes out with an op-ed in the Washington Post over the weekend saying that he questions President Trump's moral authority to lead. That's a Republican saying that about the sitting president. The second item that comes up, now Speaker Nancy Pelosi 
and Majority Leader Steny Hoyer in the U.S. House have said that they intend to use the power of advice and consent and a check on the executive branch by looking into President Trump's decision-making, including foreign policy. And the third item that comes up is now President Trump is sparring with former generals, including Stanley McChrystal, the former head of special operations in Afghanistan, and SOCOM and other units that he used to oversee, on Twitter, openly having a sitting executive question former four-star generals that were serving the U.S. military. Now, on the backdrop of all of these issues, what are the top one or two things that we can expect in the next month or two coming from the Democrats, coming from the Republicans in the Senate, and coming from the peanut gallery that's advising Mr. Trump on some of his foreign policy decisions as it relates to U.S. interests in the Middle East? Uh, as it relates to Middle East policy, that's, uh, that's a good question right now because I think the immediate uh, concern, obviously, for for now, the House and Senate is going to be um, finishing up the 2019 budget and uh, getting the rest of the government reopened. Uh, for the Middle East, I think what you uh, what you referenced um, in in your last segment regarding Syria withdrawal and sort of our our overall policy in the Middle East and how that relates to Russia's role as well as um, uh, Iran's activity, I think are probably going to be the most important issues that come up. Uh, your reference to Nancy Pelosi and, and Steny Hoyer's um, call to, to look into the decision-making process of, of the Trump administration, I think will be sort of the, the benchmark that they use to go after the uh, Trump administration's policy shift now, on Syria now, specifically. Now, on, on these investigations that we can expect coming down the pike from the House, now controlled by the Democrats, what effect does that have on the executive's ability to have effective decision-making capabilities as it relates to real-time controversies in the Middle East or any other area of the world? I mean, if I have my secretaries of defense and state being called to defend the president's actions, if I have other administration officials, if I had the subpoena of documents from the White House to see how decision-making is, is going on, will that make the president more hesitant to decide on matters as it relates to our national security interests? Uh, in short, especially given the track record of President Trump, I don't think that would have an impact on his decision-making process. Uh, I think looking at a big picture, which is, you know, it's hard to step out of the partisanship uh, atmosphere in D.C., but thankfully with the opportunity to travel uh, outside of the Beltway, it, it provides some context. Um, I think if you look at some of the recent moves that the administration has made with uh, the resignation of uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, with the U.N. ambassador, uh, and, you know, there's rumors that uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security could be on her way out. When some major shift like that happens and an acting secretary or a new secretary comes in, that will slow down any investigation because that new person needs time to get up to speed on what was going on. It also provides the new person with the leeway to say that was not under my authority, it was someone else's. So this will slow down any sort of investigation. On top of that, the um, the government 
you know, partial shutdown of the government may give uh, the administration added time or at least an excuse for not uh, not providing certain documents to the uh, to the investigating committees just due to a lack of manpower. I think all of this is is uh, uh, part of this process. I, I don't think it's unintentional by the administration. Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot that's that's happening right now. And the, you know, I think that the Democrats in the House are still trying to figure out exactly what to go after the administration on that will have the most impact uh, politically to start framing things, quite frankly, for the 2020 election. It's really unfortunate that I mean, we're now on January 2nd, 2019. We have a full, I guess, 23 months now until the next election. And we're already talking about the presidents. We had Elizabeth Warren announce her candidacy over the weekend when she was uh, stepping up to the plate to be the first major Democrat to declare her uh, intent to run in the primaries for the presidential uh, uh, nomination. I guess it'll come out in August of 2020. But let's move to the Senate for a second while we're on the topic of nominees and appointees. As I referred to in the opening segment, we have Senator-elect, almost soon to be Senator Mitt Romney, on the day before he enters into the United States Senate, challenging President Trump. Now, will this have an effect, especially to a lot of the, uh, the animus that Republican senators have been exhibiting towards the president's decision to withdraw from Syria? Will it have an animus or an impact on President Trump's nominations, including the Secretary of Defense? Um, given the increase in the uh, in the spread in the Senate, the Republican majority there, I don't think it will. Um, President Trump today tweeted in response, uh, comparing Mitt Romney to Jeff Flake, the outgoing uh, senator from Arizona, who is a thorn in his side. Uh, what is obviously different here is that now Senator-elect Romney has uh, a six-year term ahead of him. What we saw in the last election was senators and, and House members that ran away from the president or ran against the president lost either in their primaries or in their general elections. And I think it'll be interesting looking at the Senate to see how many senators may line up against the president. I mean, Senator Graham had, you know, came out against the president's move on Syria, but it wasn't as personal. Um, Senator Romney has a personal uh, animus towards President Trump. And I think we'll see that play out more from him as he seeks to to build his independence and, and try to gain some authority in the Senate. Um, and I think part of it is just taking this never Trump approach and still hoping that either the president's indicted or the president loses in 2020 so that he can try to grab the mantle of the Republican Party. I don't believe that he'll get a huge following within the Senate to take such a um, an anti Trump view or anti-Trump position on policy issues. But I do think that uh, uh, on specific policy issues, he may find agreement with other senators, but not in such a uh, public uh, public manner towards the president. Right. And, and even in the opening line of that op-ed that uh, Romney had written, he said, I will agree with the president on the policies that I think are good for the citizens of uh, Utah, who I represent, but I will adamantly disagree with him on the issues that I do not agree with him on policy. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but it's not necessarily a, uh, 
a good start to this legislative term for the new no. Republican senator from Utah and the president. Right. And that's that's legitimate. And quite frankly, any senator or House member should have that position regardless of your party. You're representing your constituents. And if policies don't help your constituents, that's you should be supporting them. Right. Talking about a uh, shot across the bow of the White House. Um, right. Now, let's pivot for a second to some foreign policy issues that the United States is current, currently embroiled in in the Middle East. I'd say about five or six years ago, we would find ourselves in a position where the Democrats, then under President Obama, were kowtowing to Saudi interests in the uh, Middle East. There was that infamous uh, bow that took place, uh, whatever you want to call it, and when he was paying respects to the king of Saudi Arabia. Then you had the Democrats trying to increase weapon sales to the Saudis in 2014 and 2015. This was then uh, prolonged by President Trump in his meeting in Riyadh in May of 2017. But all of a sudden, we now see ourselves with the Democrats and even some Republicans lining up with countries and their opinions because of the Khashoggi affair or because maybe they just saw a vulnerable weak point in this administration's policy vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia and other Gulf Arab countries, that the Democrats are coming down on the side of the traditional Iran deal backers, Turkey and, and Qatar. And we have the Republicans split in their support for the kingdom and, and some of their allies. We even have a case right now where Senator Rand Paul was able to effectively negate a key U.S.-Israel assistance bill with his ability to hold legislation. Uh, what's in pact for, uh, uh, or, or what's in for Saudi Arabia, Israel, some other Middle East issues that we have to look at, whether it be on the Senate side or on the House side for the next two years? Uh, on the, the Saudi Arabia issue, look, everything right now in this partisan atmosphere is, is from a democratic perspective, is how to criticize the president. It's very, very rare to find a Democrat that publicly um, praises the president for any any decision that he has made. Um, even when uh, the the U.S. embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, uh, an issue that Democrats had called for for years, uh, starting with the 95 Jerusalem Embassy Act, but with some of the Democrats still in Congress who had been promoting this uh, every year, and when President was sworn into office. They stayed silent on the issue. When the president decided to move the embassy, even though they they wanted the embassy moved, they either said that the timing wasn't right or they made a very muted uh, um, statement that did not reference the president and thanking him for, for this decision. So looking at Saudi Arabia, you know, the Khashoggi affair is certainly uh, an issue that provides ammunition for those who want to oppose the president. But you know, this has been U.S. policy for years. You know, the, the, the Turks are not a, uh, a bulwark of free press. Um, plenty of journalists have been imprisoned and are imprisoned in Turkey right now. So if, if you really got into the, the details of it, you would realize that Turkey is, is not any better than Saudi Arabia. But when looking at this big picture of, of Saudi support for uh, um, dealing with the Iranian nuclear issue and their their alignment with Israel and the potential you know breakthrough in Saudi Israel relationships in a public fashion you know these are bigger bigger more important issues I think you know eventually the um, the criticism 
over this and the attention to it will fade away like everything else does in Washington as more more uh, pressing issues become relevant uh, as more Democrats start entering the race for 2020 and issues that will separate them from each other will be given more more press. Um, and I think moving forward, we'll see a continuation of this uh, Saudi-Israel relationship growing and promoting that relationship. And uh, um, I think we'll see more more positive steps from the Saudis, I think, as a reaction to the Trump administration in private talks with the Saudis uh, using the leverage they have over the Khashoggi incident. And I think that even beyond that, we have Senator Romney's words saying that he puts the interests of the citizens that he represents above politics. Yet, we have other members of both the House and the Senate, whether they be Republicans or Democrats, playing politics at a key time at the juncture of our national security interests in the Middle East. And like you just said, Turkey may have had the Khashoggi affair take place on its soil, on its, on its, it's not technically its sovereign territory because under the Vienna Convention it was Saudi territory, but not to make a, 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 a mountain out of a molehill. But this is also worrisome because it seems as if no, on the Syria issue, President Trump's key foreign policy advisor is not an American, it's not a member of our National Security Council, of our National Security Establishment, or any experts, whether they be internal or external in the White House or outside the White House, but he's taking the lead from the President of Turkey. What is it about Turkey, about Qatar, about Iran even in some circumstances, where they seem to be able to have more sway over our policymaking establishment over the American press and over some politicians rather than the hardened opinions of experts who have been dealing with this issue from an American lens for decades. Well, this is the money that flows into the lobbying efforts here in Washington. Uh, I know Middle East Forum has covered uh, a lot of this extensively, especially the Qatari um, lobbying efforts since uh, President Trump won the election in November of 2016 and their ability to start influencing key key policymakers. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, uh, bigger issues that sometimes come into play, like dealing with the Khashoggi incident, which is, you know, if this was just about, you know, press freedom, about uh, proper ways of handling internal strife and, and criticism, then I think the U.S. would take a different approach. But when you're looking at the complicated factors of how to deal with international affairs and U.S. interests in a long term, a big picture, dealing with the Iranian threat, dealing with uh, Israel-Arab relations, you know, you, you have to weigh these factors. And, you know, in a, in a bubble, sure, sometimes this doesn't look so pretty. In the big picture, uh, you can see why it can make sense. But, you know, the lobbying efforts, foreign lobbying efforts, I think, are one of the biggest factors that weigh into this. And the, you know, vast amounts of money that have flowed into D.C. over the last uh, 24, 26 months uh, is staggering in the ability to try to influence our policy. EJ, thank you. We're going to keep you on the line for another segment when we have a Frime Inbar come on. But uh, our listeners will get back to us at the top of the hour. 
after these messages. Thank you. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio Philadelphia. EJ Kimball joins us for another segment. And EJ, just like we were talking right now about the ability for external influence to lobby uh, different machinations and different arms of the American government, what's your take right now on the Israeli elections that are coming down the pike? I believe scheduled for April 9th, 2019. And more specifically, how is the work that you're doing on Capitol Hill going to uh, be involved with promoting Israeli democracy or some of the interests that you're right now active in? And beyond that, how is the peace plan that President Trump has been talking about for the past, I guess, two years now going to be affected by this? That's uh, a lot to unpack. So, uh, so let's let's start with the elections sure. in Israel. Um, my my take, uh, you know, and there's been lots of folks in Israel who have obviously talked about this. It seems that uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, looking at timing, um, views this as an opportune time to hold these elections and and get a new mandate for a uh, for fresh government to uh, to start again. Uh, the the election cycle is very quick. Obviously, we're talking about three months from now. There'll be uh, elections held, and right now the polls have him winning uh, again. Uh, his party, the Likud party, uh, taking the the plurality of, of seats. And if that's the case, you know we're probably looking at a similar uh, coalition that would be built, but one that would have a new mandate um, to to follow. Uh, it's also interesting with the timing of possible indictments coming down against the the prime minister and how that could impact policy and uh, or public sentiment in Israel. Although at the at the present time, it doesn't seem like it would have a huge impact. Um, but you know, as, as we saw here, indictments or or the investigation of indictments uh, can certainly have an impact on uh, on election and and public views of it. Regarding, you know, the Israel Victory Project, the work we're doing here in the United States, the work we're doing in Israel, 
think it's very interesting, especially the timing of these elections, given the summer's, uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a war battle uh, activity dealing with the rockets fired from Gaza and the current activity up in the north dealing with the cross-border tunnels from Hezbollah. Uh, the issue of Israel's deterrent and Israel victory actually shifting to a policy of achieving victory over its enemies uh, is something that is resonating more and more in Israel. Uh, and, you know, I think when, when the election season really kicks up in Israel, we're going to see these issues of security and having an actual policy that seeks victory to seek to actually defeat the enemies versus maintaining sort of a, a an air of calm for a period of time while enemies regroup uh, is going to be a major issue in Israel. And as that relates to the United States and Congress, you know, generally speaking, the U.S. Congress has been very supportive of, of Israel's right to defend itself and, and to fight against its enemies. Uh, but with the caveat that the U.S. Congress won't go further than the Israeli government wants to go. Um, what will be a little bit interesting now is to see how this new Democratic caucus in the House, with uh, some of these new members that um, are quite outspoken about being anti-Israel, pro-BDS, um, BDS, BDS being the uh, BDS. boycott, divestment, and sanctions yeah. movement against Israel. Right, to uh, divest any activity to boycott um, products that are made in uh, uh, some of the disputed territories in uh, the West Bank, um, to, to go after Israel as the problem uh, in, in the region, as opposed to where the problem really lays, which is Palestinian uh, intransigence, Palestinian rejectionism of the Jewish state, It'll be interesting to see the, the, the type of uh, discussion that takes place in the House of Representatives um, surrounding the election. You know, we, we've got the Israel Victory Caucus in the House, uh, which is at about 27 members, starting with this new, co uh, this new Congress as we uh, had a few depart. We had two, um, uh, we have one that just went over to the Senate, uh, now Senator Marsha Blackburn. And I think what we'll see is an increase in those numbers uh, that support the, the mission of the caucus uh, and working in conjunction when the new Knesset is formed to work in conjunction with the Knesset caucus. Um, and, you know, really looking at a, a big picture here on what I think policy will reflect regarding this peace process uh, or the, uh, the plan, I think we'll see it sort of hold off again through the election and probably looking at a May-June timeframe. Uh, there's been rumors of its impending release now for, for probably about a year, but given the uncertainty in Israel, um, releasing it any time before the election would, you know, just make it uh, disappear with a, a new government that gets sworn in and there's no one to really receive it on the Israeli end right now. So I think we're going to continue in this holding pattern for, for a little while. So there's a report, and it's not often that we get to bring live news on this program, but over the last five minutes, we've now had a report come out in the Al Hayat paper from uh, Saudi Arabia that there is a leak that a uh, member of Knesset and former defense minister and also leader of the Israel Beitenu party, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, came up with 
that says that he leaked information about the Trump peace plan to the Palestinians. And I'm actually going to bring on right now president of the Jerusalem Institute for Strategic Studies, um, Ephraim Inbar, who's coming live from Jerusalem to uh, comment on this and also some of our other positions, but I'll, I'll tee it up like this. And just to, to confirm uh, that the former defense minister has denied that he leaked this to the Palestinians, but let's just uh, play with this in terms of words in the air. According to the Saudi-owned paper, and this is coming from Yediot Dachronot, the paper in Israel, the plan calls for the establishment of a Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip. Arabs in the West Bank, meanwhile, would be citizens of the Palestinian state in Gaza, but the Palestinians will not receive control of any land in the territory. Palestinian self-rule would reportedly be limited to Area A of the West Bank, parts of Area B, and a small part of Area C. And just to remind our listeners, under the Oslo Accords some uh, 26 years ago now, Area A is land governed entirely by the Palestinians, Area B is under Palestinian civil and Israeli military administration, and Area C is under both Israeli military and civil control. We'll move back for a second, EJ. I'd like to bring Ephraim on here. Ephraim, welcome to the program. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for joining us here on the airwaves in Philadelphia. So, Ephraim, we've been spending the last 20 or 30 minutes talking about Trump, his uh, foreign policy priorities in the Middle East, how a divided House of Representatives in Washington and U.S. Senate portends for his administration in the next two years. But I'd like to zero in on Jerusalem for a second. And if you can give us an update of the Palestinian issue, especially in the wake of the forthcoming Israeli elections in April. What are they talking about in Jerusalem? What are they talking about in the Knesset? What's the uh, air regarding the, the conflict as it stands today on January 2nd? Actually, the, the truth is the Palestinians are not a real subject of discussion uh, because there are other more important things than the Palestinians uh, for the Israeli uh, political uh, elite. Of course, they have the elections. And uh, I think uh, generally there is a great consensus in Israel about the Palestinian issue, uh, which was uh, <laughs> the phrase is we have no partner. And this, was, uh, this phrase was authored by Ehud Barak, a Labourite. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, the Israelis have no expectation whatsoever that uh, there will be any progress on, uh, on the peace process. Uh, I think uh, all Israelis you know, with few exceptions, are quite skeptic about uh, the deal of the centuries that is going <laughs> to be offered us maybe by President Trump. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Iran is an issue that uh, is uh, of strategic importance in the eyes of the Israelis. Uh, even Gaza, uh, you know, is not uh, so important. And, uh, the Israeli public swallowed something that uh, was incredible, you know, the giving uh, the Hamas uh, organization uh, suitcases with dollars by Netanyahu government, you know, via Netanyahu government. So, uh, you know, uh, so if uh, the Israeli public swallowed this terrible act, uh, the Palestinians are really not of much concern. 
Right. It looks like $15 million a month coming from the Qatari government. And also the Qataris trying to buy off Americans here, at least as it pertains to those involved in Middle East policymaking as a common thread of the two countries, rather than just the uh, mutual concern regarding the uh, the Palestinians and, and how to treat them. EJ. It is indeed incredible that, you know, uh, Netanyahu government uh, was a conduit for paying off Hamas uh, terrorists. So, so EJ, we, we have a policy here that Ephraim just mentioned, which is, is that the Israelis are trying to play, or not the Israelis, the, the Israeli government under Prime Minister Netanyahu are trying to placate Hamas by basically paying for quiet in the Gaza Strip. And, and, and as Ephraim says, and this is reflected by dozens of public opinion polls, the Palestinian issue, at least on the security front, is, a, is of a much lesser concern to Israelis rather than the Hezbollah tunnels up on the northern border with Lebanon, the emerging threat of Iran on the Syrian border, um, you know, even Turkey right now being able to get a, a larger share of what's going on in Syria. Why do you think Trump is so focused on the Palestinians, and at least this deal of the century, when the Israeli people themselves, almost the closest ally that the United States has in that region, are treating them at the bottom of the security threat pole. Do you think it's it's it, it's correct? Do you think that it's something that um, more focus should be uh, attended to? Uh, so that, that's a good that's a, a great question. Looking at the Trump administration, there are those that have argued and I've discussed with that say, look, the, the president is looking to put forward a plan that's reasonable, that the Israelis can can sort of get on board with. And if and when the Palestinians say no, uh, it takes the issue off the table. Um, I don't think that's going to change international opinion on Israel or their view of, of the cause of the conflict or the perpetuation of the conflict. But, you know, that's one of the arguments that, that's being made. I, I think Part of it is also the idea that if President Trump were able to be the president that solved the conflict, he goes down in history. You know, who wouldn't want to be the one that can finally solve a, uh, a longstanding problem? And, and he views himself as, you know, the, the deal maker, you know, the art of the deal. This is this is what he does and he's better at it than anyone else. So I think that's definitely part of the the uh, calculation there. Um, but, you know, when it comes to these other issues, you know, dealing with Israel's other security threats, the administration hasn't had to come out and talk about it. The Israelis are, are sort of doing it themselves and, and bringing the attention uh, into the public domain, taking actions. I mean, I haven't seen any significant criticism of Israeli actions up in the north dealing with the Hezbollah tunnels. Uh, so, you know, they definitely Israel is able to operate more freely at the moment than really I've seen in, in a while. So, so Ephraim, maybe what EJ is saying is is that because Trump focuses so much on the Palestinians with Greenblatt and Kushner and, and his tweets that come out every so often, it provides a lot of oxygen for the Israeli security services to breathe as it relates to the real existential threats facing the country. Now, I have a different opinion than than you do on the Palestinian issue. I think it's very real. I think it has to be dealt with now. I think it has to be dealt with in, in, a, in a vicious way. But I also agree with you that the immediate threat tomorrow of a Hezbollah invasion of the north of the country or of Iranian missiles landing in Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jerusalem, Beersheba is also an equal, if not greater, threat 
in, in, in the short term rather than the Palestinian issue. What do you think is, is the opinion right now of Israeli leaders on one of the, uh, the, 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 the first disagreements on non-Palestinian Israel-related policies between the U.S. and Israel? What, what's the impression right now in Israel's security establishment of Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria? First of all, I think that uh, Israelis are uh, very cautious uh, when it comes uh, to Trump, not only because uh, he's, of course, the president of America, an import, a very important country for Israel, but also because of his uh, personality. After all, he's uh, quite unpredictable. And um, so uh, we have uh, to be on our toes. Uh, you know, many Israelis understand that uh, the President Trump has a strong, you know, to juxtapose, and at the same time, uh, you know, to juxtapose his great involvement on the Palestinian issue, which doesn't make any sense if you uh, take into consideration that he wants to get out of the Middle East. Maybe this is his way to get out of the Middle East. Uh, I don't think that anybody can really give a good explanation for, uh, for the policies of, uh, of President Trump. And as a result, uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli security establishment uh, basically emphasizes the security relations, the strategic relations. Uh, we are, of course, uh, extremely happy with uh, the change in American policy vis-a-vis Iran. Um, myself, I don't believe that uh, sanctions will have an impact, and uh, I don't think that uh, regime change is uh, going to happen anytime soon. But the pressure on Iran is something that uh, Israel uh, uh, likes and understands it's important. And uh, in this respect, uh, President Trump is uh, a good ally and understands uh, the needs of Israel. Uh, but <laughs> he leaves us alone in Syria, which which is okay. <laughs> so, so you you are confident that Israel has the capability to deal with any enemies that may now rise, or or not necessarily rise, but increase their projection of power vis a vis their relations or their animus with Israel after Trump withdraws. I think we have to prevent uh, the, a greater and uh, more serious presence of Iran uh, on our northern border, uh, because uh, this will give them another front from which to attack Israel with missiles. The Iranian strategy is clear. I don't think they want to conquer Israel. They don't believe they can do it. But they are waging a war of attrition, and they have a front in the north via Hezbollah, a front in the south via Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and they want to open an additional front uh, on the Golan Heights. And uh, we should be also aware that there are attempts to undermine the Hashemite regime. And if they are successful in doing so, of course, they have uh, uh, contiguity uh, with the West Bank. So uh, this is what Israel has to prevent in order uh, to prevent uh, future deterioration in its strategic uh, situation. And this is indeed the focus of uh, Israeli military action. So, EJ, now that you've heard of Fryim's analysis, what do you think is going to be done in the administration, if anything, to guarantee Israel's qualitative military edge vis-a-vis Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, the undermining of the Jordanian government, and a potential new front on the Golan Heights? 
Well, I, I think that the administration will provide the same sort of guarantees that other administrations have done in the past. I, I think it's, um, uh, I think the bigger issue is what can the administration get the Congress to accept? And the challenge is going to be in the House, what the Democratic caucus is going to, if, if there is a reason to actually take up uh, some sort of a, a bill, a new bill on uh, providing um funds or, or policy towards towards Israel's security needs. Um, I think that's going to be the challenge is going to be what can the Democrats do in the House of Representatives and gain enough of their caucus without risking a fracture within the party. Uh, that's going to be the challenge. Now, I'm going to present a uh, unpopular view, and it's not one that I agree with, but I think it's one that has to be addressed. We mentioned Senator Rand Paul earlier and his ability to stop in its tracks a key piece of U.S.-Israel bilateral security cooperation legislation, which would have made permanent the 2014 deal, I believe, between the United States and Israel to up security assistance to around $4 billion a year and also lock in anti-missile defense systems and its funding. Some politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, for many different reasons, argue that Israel would be safer and have its own ability to act if it did not rely on American aid, that Israel disconnected from the financial incentive of listening to what the American government has to say and its ability to back that is in a better position to make its own decisions on its own sovereign right rather than outsourcing those decisions to Washington. Now, my personal opinion is is that the ability for the U.S. and Israel to have a strong relationship is not incumbent on the provision of that aid, but it definitely helps to be able to smooth the tracks between the Israelis having the upper hand against its enemies and the second thought that Israel's enemies of today are America's enemies of tomorrow, if not already being facing the same conflicts in that region. But let's say Trump does continue his Middle East withdrawal. He fails in the Palestinian side. We've got another six years, potentially, of this administration withdrawing from the region. Ephraim, the question for you is how can Israel stand on its own if it comes to that? And EJ, after Ephraim answers, I'd like you to give an analysis on if that potential uh, U.S. decoupling from Israel is something we can see or is it never going to happen? Ephraim? Well, first of all, I think that uh, an American withdrawal from uh, the Middle East uh, actually will strengthen the importance of Israel for uh, for the United States. Certain things that the Americans could do in the past, uh, they can longer do, no longer do it if they are absent from the region and they need somebody uh, to help them. So uh, I don't think that uh, a further withdrawal from, uh, uh, from the Gulf, for example, uh, will uh, undermine uh, Israel's uh, uh, relationship with the United States, just the opposite. Uh, we can uh, stand on our own. Of course, it's much easier if we have access uh, to, uh, to American technology, uh, uh, to American support. The relationship with the United States um, has also a very important political uh, meaning. Uh, that uh, the United States is a friend of Israel. Israel is, after all, a small state with limited means. And it's very important to project in our regions that uh, we have a big and strong brother. 
And EJ, do you think that this decoupling will happen with this divided House, these anti-Israel members of Congress, uh, members of the Senate like Rand Paul? Uh, I I don't think it'll happen. Uh, while I've certainly expressed some of the concerns over it, I, I don't believe that it will happen at this point. And, you know, to the bigger picture, you know, the talk about, uh, you know, basically U.S. aid to Israel, it, it's not quite the way that it, it seems of the U.S. just sort of giving stuff to, to Israel. A lot of this aid that goes to Israel is, is really purchase, uh, the ability to purchase our, our goods. It's, it's stuff that comes back and helps the U.S. economy in our industries and jobs. Uh, it's not just uh, Israel being dependent upon the United States for, for its security needs. Uh, but, you know, your argument makes a lot, uh, is something that I've, I've heard often here, which uh, is that, you know, for Israel's security, it shouldn't be dependent on any country or need any sort of, uh, you know, arrangements with other countries that ultimately uh, Israel needs to be able to handle all of its, you know, challenges itself. Obviously, having other countries uh, allied with you is, is helpful. But, uh, you know, given the potential shifts that could happen in this country, seeing the trends that we're seeing, uh, you know, Israel's security needs need to be uh, um, focused, you know, on their ability internally to be able to provide the type of uh, weapons and, and uh, uh, warfighting capabilities. Um, but overall, I think, you know, looking at the situation like Senator Rand Paul and, and his holds on, on certain uh, funds and, and certain legislation dealing with foreign aid is a real problem. And as new people enter the Senate over the next few years, uh, perhaps others will use those mechanisms as well to hold up spending bills uh, that help Israel or any of our allies dealing with foreign aid. So these are real, real issues that our allies need to be aware of and that we need to try to address proactively. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us this morning. We've May got I, about we've got about three minutes left. Uh, a frame. I'd like you to give, if you can, a minute of closing thoughts. Then EJ. Then then I'll uh, end the program. A frame. I think the, probably the most important element in the U.S.-Israeli relations is the fact that uh, Israel doesn't ask American soldiers to fight for, for her. And as long as this uh, will continue, uh, I think the Americans uh, of various political attitudes will appreciate uh, the fact that they have a strong ally uh, in the Middle East. It's the best uh, carrier they have, particularly now when they cut the number of carriers and they don't have a permanent one in in the Mediterranean and, and not one in the Indian Ocean. So we are at the service of the United States and we are probably the most pro-American country in the world. Just like uh, Ronald Reagan said in 1981-1982, Israel is the United States' largest aircraft carrier in the world that cannot be sunk. Yeah. EJ? Uh, just say, you know, from the Israel Victory Project and, and what we're doing, it's going to be a, a very interesting start to the uh, to the new year with this new Congress and, and seeing where the, uh, the administration decides to go over these next few months while Israel is dealing with their own political uh, elections and uh, looking forward to it. And to finish the segment, to finish Reagan's quote, he said, Israel is the largest American aircraft carrier in the world that cannot be sunk, does not carry even one American soldier, and is located in a right. critical region for American national security. This is how we have to look 
at all of our allies in the Middle East. Rather than trying to put them off against one another, like what happened under the Obama administration, or placating political correctness, or advancing theories of national security that have never been founded to be true, it is the necessity of this government, of this Congress, of allied governments to be able to work together to promote national security interests rather than to try to have them become political bargaining chips and advancing the agenda of one party or another or one foreign leader or another. There is an axis of Turkey, of Qatar, of Iran, their proxies, and Hezbollah, in the Palestinian Authority, in Hamas, in Islamic Jihad, and then other non-state actors which act as free radicals, whether it be ISIS, Shia militia, other brigades, and other interested actors in this conflict. There is a block, the Saudis, some of the GCC countries, Israel, Egypt, Jordan, those which have been melding together over the past two years under this administration, and it is America's necessity, duty, and charge to keep that block strong. Ephraim EJ, I'd like to thank you for joining the program this morning. I'd like to thank Delaney Janchek for coming on and, uh, and helping us organize the rest of this program for today as well. We'll be back on the air Wednesday, me. January 10th, uh, here on WWDB, 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. Have a great day.